Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You can be seated. As the choir sang of God's mercy and grace, we're going to keep on with that theme in Romans chapter 9. So if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 25 in just a moment. Remember, Paul said in chapter 8, he wrapped up that passage with, with the, this, this incredible truth, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 9, there's a question that's posed by people, how then, if, if, if God is, is nothing can separate us, how is it that the people of God, the Jewish people, seem to be separated from God? And the, the, the detractors would say to Paul, has God really abandoned the Jewish people? So Paul wants to say to them, no, he has not abandoned them. No, God is still a God of mercy, still a God of grace. He's still at work. We looked at God's mercy and God's redemptive plan and purpose. Remember we said that the, I think one of the best definitions of God's election is to say this is about God's redemptive purpose. We looked at his, his grace and his sovereignty that, that reminds us that God's the creator of all things. And so as sovereign creator of all things, he has the right to do with all things as he chooses. So with this theme, in beginning in chapter 9, as Paul gives some illustrations of, of the grace of God in the lives of the people of Israel, he continues that, that uh, uh, argument or that, that rebuttal in verse 25. So let's read together. You follow as I read aloud. As he also says in Hosea, referring back to the prophet Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. It will be a place where they were told, you are not my people. There, there they will be called sons of the living God. We'll talk about that in a minute, what Hosea meant by that. Verse 27, but Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. As just, and just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah. Using those illustrations from Hosea and Isaiah, then I think he gets to the, the heart of what he wants to say in verse 30 through the end of this chapter. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. Namely, the righteousness that comes from faith. Again, remember, that's the theme of Romans. The just, the righteous will live by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. What is that? Or why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if, that's an important phrase there, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion, to stumble over, a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes on him, the Lord Jesus, the rock, the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Well, let's first of all look at the, the, the testimony of the prophets here. And then we're going to get to some of the heart of the truth here about those religious who've rejected Christ. The testimony of the prophets in verse 25 and 26. First of all, he quotes from the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. It's interesting 
Paul is saying God has a plan for the Jews and in chapter 9 he talked about Moses and he talked about the Exodus and Pharaoh and he talked about Isaac and talked about Jacob, all of the, 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 the truths that the Jewish people would understand and now he quotes from the prophets Hosea and Isaiah. Hosea's testimony, it's interesting there, he, he says, I will call, and if you could kind of look at the word not my people, it's a name. I will call those people who are not my people, I'm going to give them a new name, my people. And I will call she who is unloved, beloved. Hosea in the Old Testament was, was in the, the context of the children of Israel being disobedient. They were being taken away by the Assyrians into captivity. And God says to Hosea, when you have these children, I want you to illustrate where I am with my people by the names you name your children. So the, the first one, he, he names the, the son, not my people. I want you to take that son and name him, not my people. I believe the second one was the daughter. And I want you to take this loved one of yours and call her not loved so that the children of Israel will know that's what's happened to them because of their disobedience, because of their rejection of my truth and intermarrying with the, 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 the pagans and worshiping pagan gods and, and all that they were doing, the idolatry. God was taking them away into captivity. And he's saying, just, Hosea, you name your kids this. So that's the implication there, the the statement there. So number one, in Hosea's day, Israel had disobeyed and rejected God. But he's promising to restore his people. When he says, you are not my people, I'm going to call you my people, ultimately. Here's what I'm going to do with you. They disobeyed, but God promises a restoration. We'll look at that in a moment. So number two, here's what Paul does. He applies this truth to his readers, the readers of the letter to the Romans, and ultimately to us as New Testament believers. He applies this truth to his readers who had accepted the gospel gospel to become his people. See, the children of Israel were the original chosen people of God. They rejected him. So then he says, now I'm going to make those who were who." who were pagans, who were Gentiles, I'm going to make them my people. I'm going to make them mine. So that's Hosea's testimony. They disobeyed. God promises a restoration. And, he, and Paul applies this to the, to the readers of his time, to Gentiles, to say they're going to be my people. Secondly, let's look at Isaiah's testimony. Verse 27 through 29 there. But Isaiah cries out, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Again, Isaiah, the same context of the children of Israel being taken away into captivity. And Isaiah's prophesying, even though they're going to be taken away, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going I'm to establish them in the land. There's going to be restoration. And that's the initial implication of that. So in Isaiah's day, God promised judgment for disobedience, yet he promised to preserve a remnant. He promised judgment for the diso- their disobedience. Isaiah, Hosea, you read the prophets. The, the main message of the Old Testament prophets to the people of, of God, the children of Israel, was if you don't obey God, he's going to take you away. He's going to take you out of the land. And because of their rebellion, the, the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom away into captivity. And then they still disobeyed. And the, some of the prophets came in and said, look what happened to the northern kingdom. They got taken away into captivity because of their disobedience. And they didn't listen. And so the Babylonians came and they took the southern kingdom into captivity. And and what you have is God saying, I'm going to judge my people if they don't follow me. But he promises restoration and a remnant. And that's exactly what happened. Ultimately, after about 70 years, he brought the people back into the land. So here's how Paul applies the truth. Paul applies the truth to his readers to remind them of their accountability and his willingness to save those who believe. He uses this truth to his readers, to say, I am holding my people accountable, but I am a God who saves. 
That's my best understanding of, of Paul's use of Hosea and Isaiah in this passage. But now let's, let's move on to what the, what, what I, how Paul really drives the, the point home and, and nails it down for them. The religious, he says, have rejected the gospel. Just think about that statement for a minute. Verse 30 through 31. The religious, the people that should know better, the people that should understand who God is and what his plan is for them, those are the ones who've rejected the gospel. Verse 30, what should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved righteousness of the law. The Jews pursued righteousness. If you're taking notes there, that's your first blank there. The Jews pursued righteousness. He mentions them in verse 31 there. They, the Israel, pursued the law for righteousness. Here's what they were doing. They, they were choosing, seeking to satisfy God by following the law. It doesn't work. Remember, we've looked at that all through the, the whole first part of the book of Romans. He, he says to them, they had everything. They had the privileges. They had the law. They had the province. They had God's plan and purpose for them. But they rejected him. They sought to satisfy God by following the law to say, if we can do everything right, God will be happy with us and we'll have salvation. But here's what ultimately I believe was happening. They looked to impress God with their own righteousness. That's important here. Not his righteousness, but their own righteousness. Again, verse 31. They did not achieve the righteousness of the law. Because verse 32 says, we'll look at it in a minute, they pursued it by faith. Looking to impress God by their own righteousness. We don't ever do that, do we? We don't ever try to put on airs or externally look good for God so he'll be happy with us and say, okay, you're good now. I think we do. Even though we preach saved by grace through faith, we have a tendency as followers of Christ to try to live by works, try to, try to have God love us more. Is that, doesn't that sound ridiculous? To, to have God more pleased with me. The Bible says, all my righteousness is what? As filthy rags. So when God looks at me, a believer, when he looks at you who are followers of Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. There's no way you can make yourself any better if you're a believer, by the way, if you're an unbeliever, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, and that unbeliever, that's the word that the Bible uses, if you're without Christ, there's nothing you can do to gain his approval because Christ did it all. You can't impress God with your own righteousness. I was reading about Benjamin Franklin this week about how he came up with a system. He, he left us a lot of great sayings, a lot of great inventions. Uh, everybody looks up, a lot of people look up to him. and He devised a system where he decided he was going to address the, the, the virtues of the Christian life. And so he made a list of 13 virtues. And he put them in a notebook. And I've just listed a few of these. He had the virtue of silence. By that one he said, Speak not but what may benefit others. And avoid trifling conversation. He had the virtue of frugality. He said, Make no expense to do good to others or yourself. That is to waste nothing. He had the virtue of industry. He said, lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. He had the virtue of tranquility listed in there. Do not be disturbed at trifles or accidents, common or unavoidable. So 
a lot of the things we get from Ben Franklin kind of come from that mindset of his to try to be a better person, try to be good. Here, so he had in his book a column of these virtues and, and another column of where he fell short of those virtues. And he would, he would record his mistakes under each one of those virtues. His desire was to complete a 13-week cycle with those virtues where he was completely perfect in all of those. Now, to his credit, you know what he discovered? While he's working on all those virtues, another virtue slipped in, or another a sin uh, slipped in, the sin of pride, because it became all about him. Listen, when we try to get to heaven by our own works and our own agenda, it's pride. It's selfishness. I've asked people all my life, do you, do you have a hope that you're going to spend eternity in heaven? And most people say yes. And then I, will, I might ask in one way or another, how do you know? And most people say, I've lived a good life. Can I translate that? I'm being good all by myself. I may not have a little book like Ben Franklin did, but I've got some checklists there, and I've done this good, and I've done that good, and I've done that good. If you could do all that good, guess what? Pride. It's all about me and what I've done. They tried to impress God with their own righteousness. So, it's an irony here that the religious people, the people of God that are their, their story is told in the Old Testament. The, the irony here is that those who had all this, the religious ones, they're the ones that rejected Christ. They rejected the gospel. But, Paul says, the non-religious, the irreligious, accepted the gospel. The Gentiles, secondly, he talks about them. They did not pursue God. Look at verse 30. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. They did not pursue God. Listen, this is so crazy. They were not interested in the gospel, but they responded when they heard the gospel. And the Jews would scream, what's well, not fair? They did. Paul talked about them in other parts of the, this passage of Romans. It's not fair. They didn't care about God. And now Paul dealt with that when he became the apostle of the Gentiles. And when they started winning people to Christ, the Jewish church said, whoa, it's not fair. They didn't even want Christ. And now they've got him and it's none. So then the Jews that had come to know Christ tried to put the law on top of those Gentiles who'd accepted him. They weren't interested, but they responded. The Gentiles obtained God's righteousness on the basis of faith. Don't miss that. Verse 30, uh, 30, 30. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely, specifically, make it clear that it's a righteousness that comes from faith. Every once in a while we will sing a song that has a phrase in there, my righteousness. And I've, I had someone stop me one time in the foyer after church to tell me that it's not about our righteousness, it's about his. And I said, I know, that's kind of why we sing that. It's because he imputes his righteousness to us. It's by faith. By faith. God's righteousness comes on the basis of faith. The Jews obtained their own, and I put in quotes, righteousness on the basis of works. Paul says they had a, a works-based righteousness. 
which doesn't work. Think about that for a minute. A works-based righteousness doesn't work. It's all about grace. Several statements I read this week that I can't remember who said them. I didn't write it down, so I'm just going to say they're mine. All right. The ones who knew the most about God did not come to know Him. The ones who knew the least about God became the ones who came to know Him personally. The ones who wanted to be righteous ended up dead in their sins. The ones who least wanted to be righteous ended up being holy, blameless. Isn't that powerful? There's a little subtle reminder in here for us who are Christ followers, who, who I'm going to say it, who pride ourselves in our obedience, who, who say, I'm living a faithful, godly life. There's this tendency for us to look down on people who didn't want anything to do with the gospel. They haven't lived a great life, but they come to Christ and their life's transformed. And we want to say, yeah, but I was good all my life. I didn't get involved in drugs and all that stuff. It's not fair that they should come to Christ and now it's all good and holy for them. That's the gospel. Be careful that we don't become like the Jews who think that we have this privilege that we can look down on those who haven't been raised in a Christian home or haven't been raised in the church. Listen, the gospel is all about meeting us all. Chapter 3, all have sinned, right? And fall short of the glory of God. We'll look at that in chapter 10. Don't resent it when a wicked person comes to Christ. Don't resent it when someone who has lived a life outside of the church comes to know Christ. That's the gospel. We need to celebrate that. It's all about grace. So here's the irony. Those who had the law, the prophets, everything, the the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle before that, those who had all that, when the Messiah did come, John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. When He showed up and walked on the earth, those people who had all that religion rejected Him. It's a part of God's plan. We'll talk about that in a minute. So let's move on now to verse 32. This cornerstone became a stumbling stone. That cornerstone became a stumbling stone. I want to read verse 32 again, or verse 32. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, the Jews, but as if it were by works. But they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over, a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Powerful truth there. This stone of stumbling became the rock that our faith is founded on. I've just said it this way. Letter A, if you're taking notes, the Jews missed the Messiah. They missed him. There have been times in my life where I've been looking for a tool or something, and I will dig through my toolbox, 
or my garage or my workbench or closet, whatever I'm looking for. And then I'll just, I get so frustrated I can't find it. And I'll ask Kelly, help me find this. And she walks right over to it. There it is. And you know what we say sometimes? If it had been a snake, it would have bit you. Right there. There's your tool. Right there. That's the way the the gospel was for the Jews. He was there, clearly a manifestation, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Right there. And they missed him. They missed him. I read a USA Today article a couple of years ago about reports in hospital emergency rooms. In, in this year, it was 2000, I think it's 2012, 1,100 people were recorded in hospital emergency rooms that had had an accident while walking with a cell phone or some electronic device. So bad that they ended up in the emergency room. Here's just a list of a few of those. A 24-year-old woman who walked into a telephone pole while texting someone. She ended up in the emergency room. A 28-year-old man who was walking along a road, he fell into a ditch while talking on his cell phone. A 12-year-old boy was looking at a video game. He stepped out into traffic and was clipped by a car. He ended up in the emergency room. A bicyclist who was talking on a cell phone ran into a 67-year-old pedestrian who ended up in the emergency room. One of the, in fact, the title of the article there, a California man was texting on a trail and he almost walked into a black bear and realized what it was and he ran. He didn't end up in the emergency room, but he could have. And, and I thought about that, reading that article, how, how the Jews were so busy with their stuff that was pointing to the Messiah that they missed the Messiah. Isn't that crazy? So busy with all the pictures of Christ and the sacrificial law, the system, all that God gave them to point to the Messiah. The Bible says the law was a schoolmaster to teach them, a tutor to bring us to Christ. They were so busy with all the stuff about when he was to come that they missed him. They missed him. Don't miss him. Don't come into this church or any other church and get all excited about the stuff of church. The great music. The great preaching. That's where you say amen. Right there. Right there. Amen. The, the great fellowship. The great food. There you go, man. Okay, something is wrong here. (laughs) And you just come and you just get so enamored with all that stuff of Christianity that you miss Christ. I've had two, two men tell me over the last five or six, eight years, you know what? We don't really agree with your theology. We don't agree with the way you do everything, but you got good food here, so we're joining this church. Just in jest. I hope. Don't don't miss the fact that just hanging around Christian people and having all that is going to get you into heaven. The great theologian Keith Green. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. 
Just being here doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. Be careful that you don't get just enamored with the stuff of Christianity that Jesus is pleading with you. Every time we gather to give your life to Christ, to surrender all, and you miss it because you just like all the stuff. Let me say something. This wasn't planned. To those of us who are Christ followers, be careful that now that you know Christ, you don't get trapped in all the stuff of Christianity that you miss the mandate, the call of the gospel to be salt and light in this world. Man, it would be easy just to show up here every week and have our holy huddle and get charged up and revived and encouraged and then just to go out and live our life like we, we just it's just about us and all about them. I need to move on. The Jews were not ready to accept Jesus because they did, he did not fit their expectations. Not only were they distracted by the stuff, but they expected him to come in and take over. Even those that were anxiously looking for the Messiah, when Jesus showed up, he didn't fit their expectation. They wanted, they wanted him to ride in on a, a white charger and overthrow Caesar. Read the Gospels. They wanted to be sitting on the, the, uh, next to him on, on, in his throne room. They wanted a place of honor. They wanted privilege. They wanted to be the people of God with Jesus coming in and wiping everybody else out. And he came as a suffering servant on a cross and they missed him. He didn't fit their expectations. Someone said people will stumble at the cross because they're unwilling to lay down their own ideas of self-righteousness. What I think I need to do. Warren Wiersbe said the Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to their level to be saved when actually the Jews had to come down to the level of the Gentiles to be saved. They had to just abandon everything else and say, here we are, helpless. We're coming to the cross of Christ. Be careful about expectations. Uh, I'm going to move on. Number four. This is just, I believe, summarizing what we looked at here. The example that Paul has given shows that God is sovereign and man is responsible. That's, I believe, the theme of, of at least this part of this chapter 9 here. Two truths. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. They don't compete. They cooperate. Remember, I think we said Spurgeon said, you don't have to reconcile friends. They're, they're together. God designed a plan to bring about our salvation. That's the first truth. This plan, his sovereign plan. He narrowed his focus to his chosen people and then ultimately to a remnant that came back in the land and ultimately through the, the, the lineage that came to Christ and brought the Messiah. He narrowed his focus. He allowed Israel's rejection to become the Gentiles' opportunity. Why did God do that? Because he's God. Don't question him. Be thankful. Be thankful. That the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. That's God's plan, God's purpose. That's his sovereign plan. Well, I love that the choir sang about mercy this morning. There's a story told about Napoleon where a mother 
came to plead with Napoleon on behalf of her son who was about to be executed. And she asked if Napoleon would issue a pardon for her son. And Napoleon pointed out this was the man's second defense and justice demanded death. And the mother said, I don't ask for justice. I'm pleading for mercy. Napoleon said, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And she said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is all I ask. And her son was granted the pardon. We, we, we don't deserve mercy. Have you all figured that out? The second truth that is so important, and it leads from that, God holds people accountable for their rejection of the gospel. God holds people accountable for the rejection of the gospel. God's sovereign, elective plan, His redemptive purpose, yet my responsibility to accept or reject the gospel. They go together. Craig Brian Larson tells about a situation where his wife went to work as a temp agent in a business. And, And as she got in there in the work environment, she realized that there was a group of four people and their supervisor who kind of had this little click, and they would, they would take extra long breaks. They would linger, not doing their work, and they would laugh and joke and whisper about other workers. And she, going in as this temp, noticed that, how they were. And, and while she was there, uh, 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 they made, she saw them make fun of, a, of a, a senior member of the staff all the time, their supervisor. Just, then this new 30-something-year-old lady comes in and, and and Larson's wife watches what happens there, and they ostracize her too. And they belittle her, and they gossip about her. Then he says his wife went back into work after working there for a couple of weeks and found the work environment had totally changed. They're no longer gossiping. They're no longer avoiding work. They're no longer taking long breaks. They're all nose to the grindstone working hard because there was a new supervisor there. So that old supervisor was gone, The new supervisor was the 30-something lady who they brought in just to kind of check things out. Everything changed. See, they didn't even know it. But this person who came in was really evaluating them and getting ready to hold them accountable. But they didn't know it. You can live your life denying the fact that one day you're going to stand before God and give an account. What have you done with Christ? You can ignore that all you want. But the Bible says he's coming. And the Bible says each man will give an account. For those who don't know Christ, the account is going to be, I've rejected him. For those who do know Christ as Savior, going to say, here's how I've lived my life. The motivation of my life. God is sovereign. He has a plan, but he holds us accountable. Thank God for his grace and his mercy. Let's pray together.